On the first Sunday of every month, we are studying the book of Psalms. The the other Sundays, the remaining Sundays for the foreseeable future, likely right through to April, April or May, we are going to study together the book of James. I encourage you to take some time each week, perhaps, to read this book. Uh, start to finish, 20 minutes maybe, reading at a moderate rate. And so maybe once a week, reading James in one sitting in its entirety and um, asking questions of the book, wrestling with some of the themes, uh, determining the major motifs and James' point and purpose, I think that would be an invaluable exercise in praying over it. That the Lord would indeed bless the book to you and bless these times of worship as we open it together, seeking to hear God's voice. This is the fourth time I've studied it in close to 18, 19 years. Uh, The fourth time I have sat down, pen and paper in hand, and sought to study, discern uh, the message of James as found in this book. I'm extremely thankful for it, as I am thankful for for God's Word in its entirety. I am particularly thankful for James, for the way in which God has used it in my own life. I'm going to give you five reasons, and Teresa is going to help me. She's going to bring this up on the screen behind me. I'm going to bring bring to you five reasons uh, why I'm thankful for the book of James, five ways in which God has used uh, this book in my life over the past 18, 19 years. And and I'm doing this to kind of set the stage then for my five objectives as I, by God's grace, unpack this book for you. Five objectives. So five things I hope, I pray, the Spirit of God works and accomplishes among us by the time we're finished, come April or May or whenever it is. I'm not suggesting that's an exhaustive list. I'm actually kind of hoping that list grows for each of you. But at the very least, these are the fundamentals, the basic five that I'm after. And they simply flow from how God has used James in my own life. So there you have it. Number one, the first reason I'm thankful for the book of James, God used James to save me from free grace theology. Notice free grace in quotations, meaning what? I'm not talking about simply the phrase, oh, grace is free, free grace. No, free grace is actually used uh, to refer to a particular theological movement. So there is a thing out there known as free grace theology. Proponents of free grace theology, just peeling back all the layers. Here it is in a nutshell. Just mix my metaphors, but there you go. Here you have it. The basics, the fundamentals of free grace theology. It is the idea that faith is an act, or rather, faith is a singular act, confined to a specific point in time in which an individual receives 
God's justifying grace. Did you get that? It is the idea that faith is a singular act, singular punctiliar act, confined to a moment of time whereby when an individual receives God's justifying grace. So here's a line. You see it? Here's a line. Start of that line, birth. End of that line, death. Somewhere on that continuum, that line, there is a, a point. A defined, definitive moment. Starting point, end point. A moment in time. A specific uh, moment where an individual commits a singular act. And it is that singular act at that confined moment that an individual receives God's justifying grace. What happens after that moment is irrelevant because faith is merely an act. Singular, punctiliar. All right, let me ask you. I often ask this. Are you with me? Do you understand that? James disagrees. James strongly disagrees. For James, faith is not an act. Faith is an attitude. It is an attitude. And the idea, the mere notion that faith can be confined to a decision, a moment of time, but does not necessarily influence the course of life is completely antithetical to the biblical witness and is completely contradictory to what James is going to bring us in this book. All right? Free grace theology. You're all familiar with it. Whether or not the expression rings a bell, irrelevant, put it away if it's not helpful, we're all familiar with the mindset. It is the individual, nine years of age, who says a prayer, makes a decision, makes a decision, raises the hand, comes forward at the end, at the invitation of a preacher. All those things, per se, I don't have a problem with them. The problem I have is this, is when faith is defined, is restricted to that single act, that single moment in time. You made a decision. You made a decision in a single moment of time at camp, around the campfire. It was wonderful. You made a decision when you were 13, and you responded to the preacher's invitation. Wonderful. But it is the idea that it is momentary. And what follows in life does not have to be consistent with what was professed in that moment of time. As a matter of fact, it can, completely, it can be completely contradictory too. And so belief in Christ does not necessarily translate into a life lived for Christ because faith is confined simply to a decision that was made in a confined moment in time. Are you with me now? That's what most people believe, folks. Most professing Christians, that is what they believe. They think faith is an act, something they did in a defined moment of time, and that, that right there is the reason why they are saved. Their lives, well, it doesn't matter how they've lived. It doesn't matter if they're actually disciples of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't matter if they actually follow the Lord Jesus. No, because they believed 
Meaning what? They think they made a decision when they were 11 years old, 12 years old, 27 years old. Have you got that? It speaks to a couple of people, doesn't it? And let me just, well, we'll see how far we get this morning. But it speaks to a couple of people. It could, be, it could be speaking to you for all I know. You, maybe you've attended here three years, 13 years. Maybe you've wandered in here for the first time. This might speak to you because you might actually be thinking to yourself right now, well, yeah, that's kind of actually what I've, I've always thought. I open up my Bible, and there on the inside it says May 27th, 1991. I made a decision. All right? But um, since then, you never really darkened the door of a church You've never really, in any definable way, uh, followed the Lord Jesus and sought to live for him, but you've got this idea, well, it just kind of makes you a carnal Christian. No such thing, my friend. You're carnal or you're spiritual. You're an unbeliever or you're a believer. You're a non-Christian or you're a Christian. You're in the dark or n- darkness or you're in the light. And so maybe this speaks to you. Maybe you've got this idea You know, yeah, with your mom, you knelt beside your bed when you're 12 years old, mix it up a little bit, and uh, and that's fine. I don't doubt for a moment that faith has a starting point. Faith, yes, it it is a decision in a sense, isn't it? That yes, there is a moment when we do receive, but it is simply the beginning of what? A life of faith. But maybe you've got this idea. Well, no, it was just the fact that I actually did something when I was 11 and then when I hit my teen years, you know, I was kind of involved. I went along to church, and uh, I, I was right in there with VBS when I was 15 and 16. It was all wonderful, fantastic, and as enthusiastic as anybody else. But then, I don't know, hit 17, 18, went off to college, and no interest in spiritual things, uh, no interest in, in fellowshipping, ministering among the people of God. Uh, I've lived my life however I've wanted to, and I've done whatever I've wanted to. Uh, here I am now, 37. But I'm convinced I'm a Christian because I think I did something when I was 12. It's possible. It's entirely possible. Someone here uh, right now fits into that category. Okay? I'm walking softly and carrying a big stick. I am. You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. You have been deceived. You have been duped by free grace theology. And you have been told that faith is an act. It is not. Faith is an attitude. And that is what James is going to argue for in this book. And he is going to demonstrate that faith in Christ leads to, necessarily results in, a life of faith. Thomas Manthan, an old English Puritan, put it this way. In Christ... There are no dead branches. In Christ, there are no dead branches. It is life or it is death. You are in or you are out. And I pray uh, the Spirit of God uses the book of James perhaps to convince some of us who still kind of fall into that way of thinking. You know, it might speak very well to someone else here this morning. And uh, I'm still treading softly, and I've put down the big stick, all right? And I say this, um, I say this carefully, cautiously, and I, I, I pray I say it pastorally. It might speak to some of us, maybe we're in our 50s or our 60s, and we've got the kid who's in his 30s now, right? And, uh, you know, you were there 
when Johnny, uh, Georgie, Jennifer, whatever, um, made the decision. And things kind of looked hopeful while they were still responsive as any 10-year-old, 11-year-old is. But uh, once they started to assert their own ways, I could still drag them to church till they were 16, but then no interest. Off they went. And they, uh, you know, they've never been antagonistic. They would still actually say they kind of believe, but uh, never darken the door uh, of a church building. No interest in God's people, no interest in God's word, and there's no discernible fruit. Okay, friend, any, apply to anybody? I hope you're telling that loved one what he or she needs to hear. They need to get saved. Make sure you're telling them that. They need to get saved. I know how painful that is. We want them to be saved and we're holding out hope that they've just been in this long 20, 30, 40 year period of a black, backslidden Christian. No, my friend, they need to get saved and make sure you're telling them what they need to hear and not reinforcing their self-deception and self-delusion that somehow because they did something yeah, yeah, when they were 11, and have lived a life completely antithetical to what they think they've done, that they're going to sneak into heaven's back door. Oh, I beg you, tell them what they need to hear. They need to repent of their sin, and they need to believe in the Lord Jesus. And as Calvin says, yes, faith alone saves. Amen. Great clarion call from the Reformation. Faith alone saves. But the faith that saves is never alone. It always leads to a life of faith, fruit. That's the first reason I'm extremely thankful for this book. As I look at my watch, I take off my watch, I put it in a place now where I can keep at least one eye, if not both eyes on it, and we move on to the second reason why I'm thankful. You can sit easy. We're only going to get into verse one today. All right, we're only going to get into verse one. We might get into verse one. Here's the second reason why I'm thankful for this book. God has used James to convince me of the nature of true religion. God has used James, so this book, five chapters, to teach me, convince me of the nature of true religion. Hear this statement. Here's what I mean by that. Christ's ultimate goal isn't to increase my knowledge but to change my life. Did you hear that? Christ's ultimate goal isn't to increase my knowledge, but to change my life. Now, careful, steady on. It is important to increase in knowledge. Why? Because that is the means the Lord Jesus uses to change my life. Here's my point. We must not think that merely growing or increasing in knowledge is the be-all and end-all of true religion. It is not. Now, let me check that. I am not, I am not advocating a mindless Christianity. On the contrary, I have very little patience for the lazy thinker. I am not advocating a mindless Christianity. The philosopher Bertrand Russell said, most Christians would rather die than think. How true that is. I'm so thankful that's not true of us here at Grace Community Church. 
Most Christians would rather die than actually have to think. I am not advocating a mindless Christianity. I am not anti-intellectual. My point is this. Increase in knowledge all you can. Get as much knowledge as you possibly can. Yes, read as many books, good books, doctrinal, theological works as you can. Engage in others so that iron sharpens iron and you grow in your comprehension and your understanding. Please, please, please do that. But understand this, that knowledge is not the essence of true religion. That knowledge is merely a means to an end. A means whereby Christ changes me. And if I am not changing in a manner commensurate with what I know, do you know what that is? That's downright ugly is what that is. And James taught me that at a juncture in my life when I desperately needed, desperately needed to hear it. He shows up. That knowledge serves a purpose. And that purpose is life transformation. Our creed is only as compelling as our conduct. Our creed is only as compelling as our conduct. That is why, and it takes one to know one, that is why I am extremely uncomfortable. I'm somewhat patient, but extremely uncomfortable with the individual who can talk a big game when it comes to Christian doctrine and yet somehow fails miserably to apply the most simple, straightforward biblical truths to their own lives. That kind of person really worries me. Uh, that kind of person really, really makes me uncomfortable. Big game when it comes to theology. Loves to dabble in all the intricacies of doctrines and latest controversies and this, 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 and this. But then you look on at their lives and look, just the simple basics, my friend. Just the simple principles, simple lessons, simple truths. Uh, there is this mismatch between what is known and what is actually done. And James, if you listen to him, if you fall into that category, James will save you from that. He will save you. He will not for one moment disparage our growth in knowledge, but he will impress upon us in no uncertain terms that that growth in knowledge isn't actually Christ's purpose. His purpose is that we actually apply it. His purpose is that that knowledge is applied to life, me as an individual. Not merely can I figure something out, but how does it apply to me? And what does Christ want me to do in response? And actually, dare I say it? Do it and respond. Me, head of my household, as a man, as a husband, as a wife, whatever sphere of life in which we find ourselves. Oh, James, I give thanks for him because he will convince us if we listen carefully to him of the true nature of religion. Here's number three. God has used, where my watch go? There it is. God has used James to show me what it means to live under grace. What it means to live under grace. Martin Luther, you've heard of him, right? Martin Luther dismissed the book of James. 
He wasn't convinced it belonged in the Bible. All right? Perhaps you're aware of that. Martin Luther, we give, we give thanks to God for him, sort of. We give thanks to God for him because he got some fundamental things right and championed some great articles of the faith. But Martin Luther got a bunch of things wrong, dead wrong. This was one of them. Uh, here we have God's inspired word. Luther was a little dismissive of the book because he, he didn't think there was enough gospel in it. I'm a little dismissive of a Luther because I don't think he saw the bigger picture and where it fits in the entirety of Scripture. It is true. It is true. James doesn't make a single reference to the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. If you're waiting for systematic theology, you're going to be sorely disappointed. He doesn't go down that road. James does not mention Christ's birth. He doesn't mention Christ's life. He doesn't mention Christ's crucifixion. He doesn't mention Christ's resurrection. He doesn't mention Christ's ascension. As a matter of fact, he only makes three passing references to the Lord Jesus in the entire book. This has led some to conclude that the book is weak when it comes to the gospel. No, when someone says that, it makes me conclude that that individual is somewhat weak when it comes to their understanding of the gospel in its entirety. I would affirm they have a very narrow understanding, focus of the gospel. This book is all about the gospel. It oozes the gospel. What it means, it shows us what it means to live a Christ-centered life. That is at the heart of the gospel. Christ redeemed me. That's the gospel. That's part of the gospel. He redeemed me to save me from what? My dead works. And to transform me that now I might live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. That is what James delivers. That is what James brings us. There are 59 commands in 108 verses. There you go. Look them up over the next few weeks. 59 commands in this book, 108 verses. That means there is at least one command for every two verses. There is way more imperative than indicative in this book. It makes some people recoil. And I think they recoil because they misunderstand the gospel. They want to minimize the gospel. They want to make the gospel all about Jesus has saved me from my sins. That's it. No, Jesus has saved you from your sins so that now you might live for him. Here's the imperative as to how he now exercises his kingship in your life. That is the gospel. James wants to show what it means to live continually in the sight of Christ's infinite merit. And so I'm gazing daily upon the cross. How should that impact me? That's what James is going to deliver. And that's the third reason why I'm thankful for him. Number four, God has used James to challenge me to evaluate my life. I'm speaking somewhat personally here, even more personally. This is a particular book, more so than any other perhaps, that God has used on me as a hammer at times, a soft whisper at other times, but a book that he has used to challenge me to evaluate my life. 
It is among one of the most convicting books in the Bible. One of the most convicting books in the Bible. Why? James takes dead aim at the sins of the tongue. Dead aim. He mentions the tongue at least once in every chapter. Most chapters, there are multiple references. He has it in his sights. It is the bullseye he is aiming for. Dead aim at the sins of the tongue. He rebukes, moreover, the sin of showing favoritism. The sin of hoarding wealth. The sin of stirring contention. James. Oh, he's all, I almost want to say he's merciless. I mean, he's full of mercy, but you get the idea. He hunts down hypocrites, giving them no rest as he lays bare the inner workings of man's darkened heart. The man takes no prisoners when it comes to unmasking the depth of our depravity. Hear me, please. This book, the book of James, it will change you or it will condemn you. It will change you or it will condemn you. Why? Because he will challenge you, challenge me to take stock and evaluate our lives, weigh our lives against God's word. Now, here's the fifth and final reason why I'm thankful for this book, how God has used it. Number five, God has used James to teach me much practical wisdom. What I don't say is that I still have much practical wisdom left to learn. The glass is half full right now. God has used James to teach me much practical wisdom. James is the New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. That's what it is. The New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. Just a sampling. Like a flower of the field, the rich man will fade away. You could lift that right out of the book of Proverbs, couldn't you? The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Oh, what wisdom in that statement. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. One more. There are so many. One more. You. Yes, you and me. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Pithy statement upon pithy statement of true biblical wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise? Read this book. Immerse yourself in this book. Here we have biblical wisdom given feet what it actually looks like for the believer to live in this world. Teresa, you can take that away. Thank you very much. Five reasons why I'm thankful for the book of James, because there are five ways in which God has used this book in my own life, and these five now set my five main objectives. They establish the course, the trajectory, that I want us to be on so that by the time we come to the end of the book of James, 
we will have achieved at least these five objectives, that we'll be able to look back and see how God has worked in these five ways and many more, but at least these five in our lives. Here's the question I've been asking myself this past week. And the question I'm going to ask myself throughout our study of this book, I want you to ask it as well, and I want you to turn it into a prayer. Here it is. What will Grace Community Church look like by the time we're finished? That's a great question. So we wrap it up in May next year, Lord willing, right through chapter 5, however many sermons that will be. The question will be this. What does GCC now look like in the future at that time, which is different from the way in which we look now? How is God going to use this book? And making that our prayer, that he would indeed speak to us through James' epistle, that we would indeed hear the voice of God. That's my introduction. What I wanted to get through this morning is verse 1. I'm just taking another look at my watch. And we might not get all the way through verse 1, which doesn't bode well for the pace at which we're going to get through this book, but there you have it. Take a look with me just briefly at the first verse. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. There you have it, his introduction. The book is full of surprises, some pleasant, some not so pleasant. This first verse gets us off on the right foot. It's full of surprises, this first verse. I want you to notice three. We'll take a simple lesson from each. Here we go. Notice firstly a surprising author. Surprising author. James. Well, why is that a surprise? James. Which one? There are a number of Jameses, men who bear that name in the New Testament. Which one? Widely accepted that the individual we have here identifying himself as the author is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. All right? That's where I land. I think the evidence is points to that, and uh, I'm not going to spend an hour explaining why. You can research that on your own. So here we have the half-brother of the Lord Jesus penning this epistle. Why do I say that's a surprise? So what? Move on already. It's a surprise because of what we read back in John 7. You go back to John chapter 7, what's happened in that, at that particular moment in Christ's public ministry? Well, yes, yeah, just it. He has embarked on his public ministry. He has been performing some miracles, right? Water into wine, walking on the sea, feeding the 5,000, healing people. And he has been preaching sermons, words of wisdom. And it is pretty evident by now what he is claiming, who he is claiming to be. He is claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the long-awaited one. He's claiming to be the promised one. He's claiming to be God's anointed. What do we read in John chapter 7? And even his brothers did not believe in him. And even his brothers, James included, did not believe in him. Fast forward, what do we have here in front of us? An epistle penned by James. I deduce, therefore, something happened, right? We don't know the details, but James obviously underwent what? A miraculous conversion. We do know, Paul tells us in the first epistle to the Corinthians, he tells us that subsequent after the resurrection, the Lord Jesus appeared to James. Well, tell me more. He doesn't tell us anymore. Maybe that's when James was converted. We don't know. All we know is the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, appeared to his half-brother after his resurrection. We also know as we read the book of Acts that James became a recognized leader in the church of Jerusalem. 
Paul tells us, I think, in his epistle to the Galatians, that James is actually what? A pillar of that church. Church history, you like a little bit of church history? Eusebius, can't always trust what he put on paper, but I don't know why he would have lied about this. Church historian, fourth century, he tells us what? James so antagonized the Jews because of his, uh, his conversion, his proclamation of the gospel, his godly life. He so antagonized the Jews in Jerusalem. You know what they did? They threw him off the pinnacle of the temple to his death. There he was on the ground, face down in front of the remnants of the, te- the temple. Uh, and so he died a martyr's death. Somewhere, we know at least somewhere, perhaps that appearance of the Lord Jesus after his resurrection, James underwent a miraculous conversion. Just want to take a very simple lesson from that. Here it is. Conversion is a miracle of God's grace, isn't it? James testifies to that. Conversion is a miracle of God's sovereign grace. Uh, I mean, we move. I move. When I was converted, I moved from darkness into light. I moved from bondage into freedom. I move from death to life. Dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. J.I. Packer writes, sin is a blind, anti-God, egocentric energy in the fallen human spiritual system, ever fomenting self-centered and self-deceiving desires, ambitions, purposes, plans, attitudes, and behaviors. Darkness, bondage, death. But what? Oh, what are the words of that great hymn we sing? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. O conversion, a miracle of God's sovereign grace. So there's a surprising author. Notice, secondly, there's a surprising title. James, what does he say about himself? It's interesting. It's surprising. He doesn't mention his filial relationship with the Lord Jesus. Why does he say that? James, brother of Jesus Christ. doesn't say that. He doesn't mention his eldership. He doesn't mention his apostleship. He says, some, he says nothing of that stature that he possesses in the church of Jerusalem. It's just simply James. And what does he say about himself? How does he describe himself? What title does he designate to himself? A servant. A slave, a bond slave, a servant. That's all I am. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, evidently James knows something about his sin. He knows something about God's grace. And the two have cultivated in him that which is so precious in the sight of God. Poverty of spirit, lowliness of mind, humility. And humility is the soil in which servanthood flourishes. I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's your takeaway lesson. Servanthood is a fruit of God's sovereign grace. Conversion, a miracle of God's sovereign grace. Servanthood, a fruit of God's sovereign grace. I know it is completely opposite, antithetical to what we hear from the world. We want to be great, not small. 
We want to be noticed, not forgotten. We want to be esteemed, not neglected. We want to rule, not serve. Please hear this. Servanthood is the posture of those who have stood in the shadow of the cross. Servanthood is the posture. Now you know if someone stood in the shadow of the cross. It is verifiable. Servanthood is the posture of one who has stood in the shadow of the cross. Oh, alas, and did my Savior bleed. And did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Hear this. The drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Is all that I can do. Humility serves. It anxiously looks to the needs of others. It carefully measures all that it does by whether or not it actually helps others. I am thankful. I am thankful for you. I am thankful for Grace Community Church. The class is 80% full. We're not going to talk about the 20% empty. 80% full, all right? And I'm extremely thankful. And you think of this past summer and uh, the mission teams that went out, the people who gave so that those mission teams could go out. You think of the VBS and the hours. I'm not going to mention names I could, but the hours and hours and hours and hours put into that. Uh, you think of the soccer camp and the number of volunteers there. And now you start to add to that the medical clinics, the Sunday school, the extended session, the bookstore, the worship team, on and on and on and on it goes. You add to that, and I think everything I just mentioned probably, probably pales in comparison to what I'm about to mention. Everything that goes on behind the scenes that we never, ever, ever know about. Men and women serving each other and ministering in ways that we're just not even aware of. And you think of the service we perform unto the Lord in the context of our families, those whom God has entrusted to us. You think of the service unto the Lord that is our vocation, our calling, our job. You add it all up. And I am exceedingly thankful for Grace Community Church. I don't say that so we start beating ourselves on the chest. I say that because it is a testimony to the work of God's grace among us. It actually testifies and confirms what? That many of us actually get it. We actually understand sovereign grace. We actually understand that anything better than hell itself is a mercy. That God owes us nothing. And yet, because of his mercy and his goodness and his grace, boundless, boundless in measure, through the redeeming work of his son, 
and the regenerating work of His Spirit. He now calls us His children. And we now claim Him as our God and Father. Oh, that leads to humility. That leads to lowliness of mind. It leads, as the Lord Jesus describes it in the Sermon on the Mount, to poverty of spirit. And that leads to what? Servanthood. Servanthood is a fruit of God's sovereign grace. There's a third surprise. Here it is, the audience. A surprising audience. You've got a surprising author, surprising title, surprising audience. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, not exactly how Paul starts his epistles. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In the time of, of Christ, there are more or less 4 million Jews in the Roman Empire. 4 million Jews. There are more Jews living in the land of Syria than in the land of Israel. There are more Jews living in the city of Alexandria in Egypt than in the city of Jerusalem. The Jews are dispersed. It has led some to conclude that James is writing, therefore, to whom? Jews, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Check that just for a moment. Peter, in his first epistle, opens with something very similar. Listen to these words. Peter writes, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Jews, what does he go on to say? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Peter is not writing to Jews. He is writing to Christians. James is not writing to Jews. He is writing to Christians. Look at what he says later in chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will, that is God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's the new birth. It only applies to believers. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so James is evidently writing to believers. So why does he describe these believers as the 12 tribes in the dispersion? Why does Peter use similar language? I think for at least a couple of reasons. The first is this. They are identifying what they know is true, simply this, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the true Israel. That all of God's plans and purposes and promises and prophecies for the nation of Israel find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore their ultimate fulfillment by extension with his spiritual body, the church. They're making that clear. James himself makes that perfectly clear back in Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem. But there's another reason. I think they are simply drawing on the history of the nation of Israel. Yes, in the Old Testament, a dispersed people. And now figuratively applying it to the church that likewise, similarly, believers are a dispersed people. They are but exiles, is the point he wants to make, and it becomes crucial for understanding the rest of the book. Believers are nothing more than exiles. In this world. That's the lesson we must take from it. Exile is the natural condition of God's people in this world. That is an extremely, extremely 
timely lesson. Many of us, perhaps even most of us, myself included, we have lost sight of the fact that we are exiles. We are aliens. We are strangers. We are foreigners. We are refugees. The North American church has completely, completely lost sight of this vision of the Christian sojourn as one of exile. We are exiles. We are refugees. What is true of a refugee? They don't belong where they find themselves. They're probably not even wanted where they find themselves. But they belong someplace else and find themselves in their current circumstances and conditions without rights. They find themselves as simply foreigners and exiles, unwelcome, and they're actually still longing for what? Something else. How many of us does that describe as Christians? How many of us right now, and I put myself in this category, how many of us right now in this room would describe our Christian sojourn like that? I am nothing more than a refugee. That is all I am in this world. I am looking for and longing for my homeland that is somewhere else. It consists in the return of the Lord Jesus and a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We need to get that right at the outset of this epistle or what James is going to bring to us is going to do like a flyby right over our heads. We are dispersed. We are exiles. Hear this, please. I'm going to sum it up in five points. Quickly through it, the time is gone. Here they are. We'll develop them at a later date. A theology. Let me throw in a sixth. Comes to mind now. A theology of exile. I won't remember it, but I've gone time. I've gone through the first five. Maybe I will. Number one. A theology of exile will save us from the soul-crushing clutches of materialism. Many of us simply want to add eternal security to earthly comfort. And hope we can just make it through life without any trouble. Now we are exiles, my friend. And a theology of exile will save us from the soul-crushing clutches of materialism. Number two, a theology of exile will enable us to see life's trials as a necessary precursor to the life to come. And so look what James is going to say in verse 2 immediately. Having acknowledged the fact that we're exiles, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What else do you think you're going to find in this life? You're a refugee. Your life will be marked by trials. Oh, and understanding and appropriating this theology of exile will enable us to see life's trials as an absolutely necessary precursor to the life to come. Number three, a theology of exile will guard us from falling into fits of despondency as we look at the moral decay around us. Number four, you're trying to write these down frantically. Don't worry. Relax. Breathe easy. We're going to come back to them all in due course. Number four, a theology of exile. We need this right now. We're going to need this between now and November. A theology of exile will keep us from equating the advancement of God's kingdom with the advancement of any earthly nation or political leader or social agenda. We just will not couple the two. 
because we're refugees here after all. Number five, a theology of exile will strengthen us to count the cost of true discipleship. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And number six, a theology of exile will cause us to value Christ above everything. Did you get all that? Surprising author, right? Oh, the miracle, the miracle. Conversion is a miracle of God's sovereign grace. A surprising title, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, actually, nothing surprising about it. Servanthood is what? It is the condition, it is the calling, because it is the fruit of God's sovereign grace. The 12 tribes in the dispersion, something we have lost. The North American church has completely lost this. We are but exiles in this world. That is the natural condition of God's people in this world. And everything James is about to unpack in this epistle hinges on that theology of exile. Oh, may the Lord give us eyes to see it. May he give us ears to hear it. And may he give us hearts to receive it. That truly our lives might exemplify true religion. That which is pleasing and honoring in the sight of God. Our Heavenly Father, we do make this our prayer having heard your word. We acknowledge that Christ is the supreme prophet. He is the ultimate prophet, completely dependent upon him to reveal his will. And we are completely dependent upon him to send forth the Holy Spirit to help us to understand it and live according to it. And so we make that our prayer right now, that uh, having heard from the scriptures, that you might give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we might truly know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your inheritance in the saints, and what is indeed the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. We ask it in Christ's matchless name. Amen.